A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Today is Friday, May 15th, 2020. On this day in 1970, armed police forces from across Mississippi were called to the Jackson State University campus to subdue a group of students protesting the Vietnam War. Shortly after midnight, the police opened fire on the students, injuring 12 and killing two. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Today we're covering the Jackson State University killings. It had been only 11 days since the Ohio National Guard opened fire at Kent State University, killing four young Vietnam protesters. Let's go back to Jackson, Mississippi, around midnight on May 15, 1970. Seventeen-year-old James Earl Green was walking home from the late shift at the local supermarket. Night after night, he took that same path past the Jackson State University campus. A senior at Jim Hill High School, James admired the students who would linger outside, having deep intellectual talks while they smoked their Marlboro lights. Perhaps one day soon, he'd be one of them. But tonight, things were different. A large crowd of primarily African-American students had gathered outside the campus, toting signs and chanting anti-war slogans. On top of protesting the Vietnam War and the recent massacre at Kent State University, the students were fired up over a rumor that was spreading like wildfire. There were whispers that Charles Evers, the African-American mayor of Fayette, Mississippi, had been assassinated. Of course, such an assassination would surely be racially motivated. The students were appalled. Several of the Caucasian citizens, meanwhile, were likewise appalled by the student protesters. They phoned the Jackson Police Department, claiming that the protesters had turned violent. They reported that the African-American students had begun throwing rocks and other debris at cars driving down Lynch Street, which passed right by the campus. They also claimed the students had been overturning trucks and setting objects on fire. The Jackson Fire Department arrived to extinguish the fires, but they were soon joined by the Jackson City Police, followed by state troopers. There were now close to 75 heavily armed officers following the crowd of about 100 students. They were all marching towards the women's dormitory, Alexander Hall. Accounts of what came next have been debated over the years, but whatever happened, high schooler James Earl Green was there to see it. It was 12.05 a.m. on May 15, 1970, when the shooting began. 
Some students stated that the officers simply opened fire without any warning. Some believe that it was a broken bottle that spooked the crowd. Reports from the law enforcement officers on the scene were contradictory as well. Some claimed that there was a sniper who opened fire from inside of Alexander Hall. Other officers said they saw a powder flare going off on the third floor of the dormitory and fired towards the building to protect themselves. Everyone seemed to have a different story, but one thing was clear. The results were devastating. For 30 long seconds, the gunfire continued. Students ran for their lives, hiding behind trees, bushes, anywhere that they could take cover. Others stampeded into Alexander Hall. Many were trampled and wounded in the pandemonium. In the end, more than 150 rounds were fired into the crowd. 12 students were seriously injured from either broken glass or gunfire. Two bodies, meanwhile, remained motionless on the campus grounds. 21-year-old Philip Lafayette Gibbs, an African-American junior who'd been studying pre-law at Jackson State, was dead. He had a wife, an 18-month-old son, and another child on the way. The other body was 17-year-old African-American high school senior, James Earl Green. Up next, we'll take a look at the aftermath of the Jackson State University killing. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And now back to the story. At around 12.05 a.m. on May 15, 1970, police forces fired at least 150 rounds into a crowd of student protesters at Jackson State University. Twelve were injured and two men were killed, 21-year-old Philip Lafayette Gibbs and a 17-year-old passerby, James Earl Green. This came on the heels of a similar situation at Kent State University. On May 4th, only 11 days prior, 77 National Guardsmen arrived at Kent State and fired approximately 67 rounds into a crowd of protesters. Four students were killed and nine others were badly wounded, leaving one student paralyzed. The back-to-back -back tragedies became a symbol of the social and political dissonance the United States was experiencing in the face of the Vietnam War. 
protests were becoming common on university campuses, especially after President Richard Nixon's April 30th announcement that he was endorsing the Cambodia campaign. The United States were now bombing trade routes in Cambodia in hopes of decreasing their supplies and weakening the Vietnamese armies. Many Americans were disgusted by this escalation of a war they already felt was pointless. The draft lottery that was feeding the conflict soldiers only heightened their horror. Everyone was afraid that their brother or lover might be next to go. For black Americans, the threat was the worst of all. Young black men were being drafted at higher rates than anyone else. Like many on the American left, student protesters believed it was time for America to cut its losses. It was time to bring the troops home. But Nixon's America refused to hear their message. They responded to protests with disgust and, in many cases, with violence. Still, while protests had been happening all over the country, the predominantly African-American students at Jackson State were the only ones, aside from Kent State, to suffer a massacre. There was surely a racial element to this tragedy, white officers gunning down young black protesters. Insult followed injury. In the days following the Jackson State killings, no arrests were made, despite the fact that the FBI found that there was, in fact, no sniper opening fire from inside of the dormitory, as the officers had claimed. A month following the massacre, on June 13, 1970, President Nixon established the President's Commission on Campus Unrest to do a deeper investigation into the shootings at both Jackson and Kent State. The first hearing was held on June 25, 1970, in Washington, D.C. They went on for 13 long days, where the commission heard testimonies from students, faculty, staff, the local police, and the National Guard. The commission ruled that the events were unnecessary, unwarranted, and inexcusable. They also ruled that the Jackson State killings were nothing short of unjustified. But the ruling was empty and meaningless. Neither the police officers nor the National Guard would face any consequences for their unjustified actions. The only people that would pay a price were the victims and their families. Still, although it took some time, there was some positive change following the Jackson State killings, thanks to Jackson Mayor Russell Davis. The mayor spoke out against the rulings and created a biracial committee to clear up any loose ends the committee's investigation had overlooked. The mayor also asked for the resignation of the city's police chief, W.D. Rayfield. Rayfield's replacement went on to issue regulations that would keep derogatory and racial slurs out of the public's lexicon. And finally, Mayor Davis appointed the first African-Americans to the city's school board and local government. But things were hardly perfect. The racial tensions that surely played into the shooting were far from resolved. As a 1971 New York Times article explained, the great state of Mississippi still required a lot of racial progress and trailed most of the Deep South, not to speak of the nation, by 10 to 15 years. 
It's now been 50 years since the Jackson State killings. The circumstances surrounding the event have never been made clear. The families of the victims, including Green and Gibbs, have never gotten justice. And for many Americans, the tragedy is in danger of being forgotten. But Galia McGee-Porter, a survivor and witness to the deadly Jackson State shootings, believes it's important to keep the memory of the event alive. She claims, It lets us remember that this is a tragedy that could happen again if we're not careful to continue to build and improve relationships across racial lines. At Jackson State, there's been an effort to sustain that memory. Today, the scene of the shootings has been renamed the Gibbs Green Pedestrian Walkway in honor of the men who lost their lives that night. Bullet holes, which can still be seen on the exterior of Alexander Hall, serve as an even more poignant memorial. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For more stories of crimes within the ranks of the government, check out ParCast Original, Political Scandals. Today in True Crime is a ParCast Original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 